Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Eric Lures. And it's October 11th, 2018. On this week's show, the year of the Dockbuster continues, a field test with Fujifilm's new video-centric mirrorless camera, what exactly defines Tarantino-esque, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hi, y'all. Welcome to this week's show coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. We are here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. How was your week, Liz? Or two weeks. I know. know you were on last week's episode. I missed you all and all of you out there uh, last week. But it's uh, part of the reason I was out is because I've been so kind of busy prepping with the new job. Um, As you all know, by now, I think I'm working with the Sundance Institute and we one of the things I'm doing there is um, facilitating their new online courses. And so the very first ones launched now we did for the kind of pilot program, we did a six week screenwriting uh, workshop and a 12 week screenwriting workshop or course. And they both had their first classes since I was here last. And it was really kind of exciting, like a really cool experiment. Um, we had screenwriters joining the the online session from as far as China. This woman joined at four o'clock in the morning her time. A guy in wow. Australia was there at three thirty in the morning his time. We had someone on from Beirut. It was like amazing. And I discovered that some of them were already listeners to the show. Oh my goodness yeah. gracious! So shout out to any of the uh, Sundance Institute screenwriting participants who are listening to oh, them, the show right oh, now. Oh, okay, the students specifically. I thought there were like people in Beirut who were just other, not involved in film, that were just listening to the podcast. That's Imagine. probably true. Now, thought, we have a big following in Lebanon. I, I was wondering, wow. Well, that's very cool. That's yeah. very, I, I didn't have much, I saw A Star is Born. Oh, very, yeah. Very tragic, very sad. Was it really? It is. Had you seen any of the past versions? I saw the Barbra Streisand one a long time ago. I mean, that's know. a tough act to follow. Yeah, yes, that's very true. Almost literally. Uh, right. But it's yeah, it is very good though. Bradley Cooper is excellent. Um, that's about it for me. We're still waiting on my sister's baby, but really, she was due last week. So boy, that little that little person really don't know likes it in there. Hopefully, by the next episode, there will be a baby. I will be an uncle, but uh, who knows? You know. By the way, speaking of A Star Is Born, I also just heard that Lady Gaga is now going to play Fanny Bryce in A Funny Girl. I, remake, I think that works. Which was like Barbara Streisand's original yeah. role. She should just take over Barbara Streisand's films. Like, just, uh, yes. What was it, Nuts, the one with Richard Dreyfuss where she's like a crazy lawyer? I don't uh, think Gaga could be like Yenta, though. No, she can't be Yenta. No. Uh, I also don't think she really can be a funny girl, I have to say. That's like a very Jewy role. Can she be Mrs. Fokker? <laughs> you know, like Fuck Babs that. did well. Oh gosh. Oh. Well, anyway, so I'm I'm impressed you went to see Stars Born because I I don't know I'm kind of on the fence, but everybody freaking loves it. You should it. see it. You should see it. The music is very good too. I um, mean, the girl can sing. I'll give her that. Yeah. So after you see it, I will sing it for you. Oh, uh, good. Now on to today's news. Um, Liz, you know what I love besides the Stars Born and me. And besides, well, you are the star. Oh. Uh, <laughs> words, and especially new words, especially new words that have officially been declared official. And boy, do I have some new ones of those to announce. Wow. Yeah, yeah and I didn't make these words up. Uh, if you've ever attempted to break down a director's style to a colleague and were falling the victim of saying, like, oh, it's very Lynchian, or as Liz said earlier at the show, it's very Tarantino-esque, uh, you know what, there's now some good news on the horizon. You can no longer be accused of making up these words, because if you describe something as Spielbergian, 
you've just found the perfect word. Because yes, the Oxford English Dictionary has unveiled its latest round of updates to its collection of nouns, adjectives, and phrases. And in the batch are some very specific film-friendly additions, over 100 actually. Uh, Lynchian, for example, means characteristic, reminiscent, or imitative of the films or television work of David Lynch, which, which makes sense. Uh, and there are other auteur descriptions like Altmanesque, Bergmanesque, Bressonian, Godardian, Hoxian, Herzogian. Uh, there are many. And as Liz pointed out uh, to me the other day, there are no female directors as part of this list. I don't, you know, Penel- Penny Marshian, Marshallian, uh, Catherine mm. Bigelesque, you know, we, <laughs> there could have been some good ones. There really could have been. I, I think it's kind of cool that these are in the dictionary now, but... Mm. I know. And now, Liz, if I were to ask you what you think Tarantino-esque means, what would you guess is the definition? <laughs> Fueled by cocaine? <laughs> well, let's see. Is that in there? Well, uh, let's see. The official, official definition, resembling or imitative of films of Quentin Tarantino, characteristic or reminiscent of these films, Tarantino's films are typically categorized by graphic and stylized violence, nonlinear storylines, cine-literate references, satirical themes, and sharp dialogue. Cocaine could probably be added, though, to it. Um, <laughs> that's, actually, that's really kind of interesting. I wonder how they develop these definitions. I know. I feel like you get into a lot of debates with the people who come up with the official definitions. Like, eh, masculine-esque, uh, foot fetishist, like for Tarantino movies. <laughs> I don't know what they decide to cut out. Uh, other phrases included in the crop include direct-to-DVD, which feels like a decade too late, uh, blink and you'll miss it. And we're not in Kansas anymore. These are phrases that are now in the dictionary as well. Um, And also, if you are a older woman who likes a younger man, you are now officially called a Mrs. Robinson. Really? Um, Not a cougar? I wonder if a cougar is actually in the dictionary. It probably is as well. But Mrs. Robinson is now a a term that is in the Oxford English Dictionary. I don't understand how blink and you'll miss it is a film-related term. Uh... It's they listed that as one of their film centric ones. I guess maybe like eh, if you see like a cameo or something or blink and you'll miss it and you'll miss the man in the background. I, I don't know. know. Oblique it, it Walter seems, Murch reference. Yeah, it doesn't need to be film centric that one, but uh, they included that as one of their film ones on the 120 that they have or so. Well, I'm a word nerd, too, so I kind of love this story, although I really can't believe direct-to-DVD was just added. Just added now. It's just it it's ridiculous. Like, I don't think we're going to be using that one too often. Mm. But, and we're not in Kansas anymore. It took about 80 years, but <laughs> luckily it's in there. But we're definitely not there. No, well, definitely not us, no. Oh. <laughs> um, so moving on, we give a lot of shout-outs on this show, but this might be our biggest one yet because it's not every day that someone in the larger circle of the indie film world wins a Nobel freaking Peace Prize. You heard me right. The subject of Alexandria Bombach's powerful documentary On Her Shoulders, which was one of my favorites out of Sundance this past year, has been awarded this huge honor. The person I'm talking about is 25-year-old Nadia Murad. The film documents her relentless activism on behalf of her people, the Yazidis, who are an ethnic minority from northern Iraq who were singled out for extinction by ISIS. Her own story... Honestly, it's almost too painful for me to repeat aloud, but it involves her being sold and used as a sex slave by the ISIS group that killed her mother and brothers. Since escaping, she's been on a global campaign to save the rest of the Yazidis, and hopefully the Nobel Prize will help further their cause. It sounds like a heavy movie to watch, and no doubt it is, but it's also extremely moving and in a way hopeful, like a testimony to the resilience of the human spirit. 
And you can see it for yourself soon as it's coming to theaters starting next Friday. We'll probably talk about it more on next week's show. Speaking of theatrically released docs, the year of the doc buster continues. And this time we might call it a rock buster. Like a, like a rock as in granite? Like an actual rock? Oh, oh wait Not for like it. Not like rock and roll. Wait for it. A ninth theatrical documentary has joined the ranks of those making over a million bucks at the box office in 2018. And this one did so in just two weeks. Free Solo, not to be confused with the Star Wars movie, is a film by married directing team Elizabeth Chai Vassarhaley, whose last name I, I admit I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce. Do you know how Vassarhaley? That sounded pretty good. Yeah. And, uh, and her husband, Jimmy Chin. It's about a crazy ass guy who attempts to climb El Capitan, a 3,000 foot granite cliff, see, rock, rock buster, oh. in the Yosemite Valley using the free solo method, which basically means climbing alone without using any ropes, harnesses, or other protective equipment. Yee. <laughs> one of the reviews I read called this one of the greatest athletic feats of all time. So he does it. He's successful, I hope. I'm not giving a spoiler okay, alert. Okay. But I will say that audiences are clearly responding. Quartz reports that Free Solo generated the highest per screen average for any movie released in the U.S. so far this year. Any movie, not just documentaries. When it opened in four locations over the weekend, bringing in 72551 bucks per average per theater. Now, from a filmmaking perspective, I'm really excited to learn how the team physically captured this kind of extreme footage and what it was like to film someone doing something that, frankly, could kill them. So, again, we don't know whether, you know, what the outcome of the film was. Fortunately, we'll have an interview up by our own resident mountain climbing filmmaker, Oakley Anderson Moore, up on the site this week. That's true, but not with the rock climber himself. So we still don't know if he's alive or not. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe he is. Speaking of zombies. Speaking of zombies, uh, last week was actually the 50th anniversary of Night of the Living Dead, having opened on October the 1st, 1968. And now there's news that there are some more film scripts from the late George Romero that are have been lingering around for a while. Um, in an interview with comicbook.com, Romero's wife, Suzanne Desrochers Romero, noted that there may be close to 50 unproduced scripts that her late husband left behind. And that's a, that's a lot of scripts to un- uncover. Uh, we have a lot, and George was a prolific writer, his wife said. He loved to write, and we have 40 to 50 scripts that he's written, and a lot of it is very good. Uh, he had a lot to say, and he still does, because I'm going to make sure that he does. It's my mission. Apparently, also, there is an unreleased film of Romero's from 1973 that also exists deep in the vaults. They're going to restore that and eventually release that. That's their plan, at least. Um, for those wondering what some of the scripts included, one was called Road of the Dead, which includes zombies on motorcycles on an island overseen by a Trump-like figure. Uh, and funny thing, about two years ago, this project was in at the Fantasia International Film Festival in Montreal. They have a co-production market. And I was traveling there as a member of IFP, my previous employer, to meet with them. And it, Romero was going to be there along with the official director of the project. Romero was a writer and overseer and a producer as well. And then just about five, four or five days before the production market was going to take place, George Romero passed away. No. Yeah, yeah. So I, I never did get to meet him, but uh, they were pushing for this Road of the Dead film even back then. And I think he wanted to have that social satire aspect of it as well. So I spoke with another member of the team there, and that was about two years ago. And I know it's had some troubles getting stopped and starting. Uh, but hopefully this will, along with many other of his projects, see the light of day pretty soon. So it was pretty neat. 
Wow, that's, I mean, how, how unusual that someone passes away and suddenly we find 50 scripts yeah. unproduced. Yeah, it's like, I, I imagine that they're some unfinished and some of right. various quality. Yeah. yeah, so <laughs> you never know how the writers feel after they pass away about these things going out to the public. But, you know, I think his fans will definitely crave it, no doubt. Yeah, and since his wife is the one, sounds like, responsible for them, she'll I'm sure she'll, like, honor his, you know, what would be his wishes. Yeah. Um, I'll also mention that we have one of the the best obits I think that's ever appeared on No Film School um, was written by Scout Tafoya about George Romero um, because Scout is a is a true, you know, deeply felt fan of that genre and of Romero in particular. So we will link to that one in the podcast post so you can learn more about the prolific horror auteur before his uh, new films rise from the dead. Oh my God! Shout out to Pittsburgh where he's from. We don't give enough love to Pittsburgh on this show. <laughs> we don't give any. Uh, yes. Um, so finally in headlines, we have to say a sad goodbye to screenwriter Audrey Wells, who passed away last week at the age of 58. In a strange twist of fate, she left us the day before her current film, The Hate You Give, hit theaters. The film is about a young African-American woman who becomes politically active after her friend is shot by a white police officer. It's getting a lot of critical acclaim. People are really loving this movie, and it's actually expanding in theaters now. Uh, and it might seem to be kind of more serious fare than some of uh, Wells' best-known films, like Under the Tuscan Sun and The Truth About Cats and Dogs. But they all have something in common, strong female protagonists. Her agent from UTA said in a statement, The strong, independent female characters she shaped resonate today more than ever and will be a part of her legacy always. Rest in peace, Audrey Wells, and thank you for your words. And now, here's Charles Hayne with some tech and gear news. Hey, everybody. This is Charles Hayne here with gear news, tech news uh, for No Film School. So top news this week, Pomfort has released a slimmed-down version of their top-of-the-line DIT toolset Silverstack with now Silverstack Download Manager. So... A lot of people think, okay, DIT on set, I can just like drag and drop files from the camera card to Finder and it'll all be good. But actually, when you're working on a really big, complicated show, you actually generally want to do something more sophisticated than that. First off, you want to do check some verified copies where they check every individual bit of data to make sure it copied correctly. They don't actually do that. They use an algorithm to generate a hash. But it is a better copy than a finder copy. You get more confidence that you actually copied correctly. And then you're also going to want some tools to organize the data to be able to keep track of what cards got downloaded when, generate reports, that kind of thing. Because when you're downloading dozens of cards a day, you want to be confident you actually successfully downloaded everything. Most of the major DPs in the industry use something called Pomfret Silverstack. And Pomfret LiveGrade is another popular tool from the same company that's used for uh, on-set color grading of the images, manipulating LUTs on monitors, all of that kind of stuff. But Pumfort's never really had an entry-level tool. And so for those of us on indie projects who want something just to manage our downloads with a more stripped-down set of tools, Pumfort is now offering Pumfort Download Manager, which is way more affordable. Pumfort Silverstack is definitely aimed at working DPs who are billing at such a rate where the software price makes sense, and it's a great tool for that. But it's really exciting that they're now giving a tool for the indie and sort of student market where you're going to be able to practice with Pumfort, get really comfortable with the program, and then if you bump up to being a full-time DP, it's going to be there for you. Next up, uh, Baselight has updated their in-Avid Media Composer plugin for better color grading within Avid. 
Uh, writer Lily Kleinman took a crack at it and did some color grading on a project within Media Composer, and the results were surprisingly good. She found them to be much better tools than the native in Media Composer color grading tool set. Obviously, with Media Composer Ultimate, you get the full Symphony tool set. But I actually think a lot of people would say that these baselight tools are a little more sophisticated and modern feeling than even the Symphony tools. And uh, I think her final conclusion was that on a lot of projects, you're not going to have necessarily the time to round trip to resolve. And that if you've got that going for you, if you have that real-time crunch, you might want to consider using the Baselight tools within Media Composer. Interestingly, those Baselight grades from Media Composer will also hand over to full Baselight, which is always a nice feature. Um, last up this week, say hello to the new Mocha Pro. Uh, our writer, Justin Morrow, actually also got hands-on time, and I believe pre-release hands-on time, because his review came out when Mocha Pro 2019 got announced. So Mocha, obviously, if you guys don't know it, is from Boris FX, and it is a motion tracker, and it is the motion tracker that really brought motion tracking into the mainstream. Uh, you know, the famous example that people were using 10 years ago was Cloverfield. Like, you couldn't do those handheld shots with monsters in them before Mocha because Mocha made it so easy to track a shot and then put a monster within that track. Uh, but, you know, Boris and Mocha haven't rested on their laurels. They have introduced a whole host of new features. One of the big ones is uh, for, like, patch replacement like when you're wanting to get rid of an object in frame or something, that is now GPU accelerated and apparently way, way faster, which is really nice. There was a demo of some of the real-time effects they're trying to integrate at NAB, and it was very impressive. Along with GPU acceleration, they've also integrated the entire Mocha VR toolset into plain old Mocha. So it used to be it was a separate application for Mocha VR, but now all of the Mocha VR tools are just one click away from within plain old Mocha. So it's integrating those two together. Uh, Mocha comes with After Effects, but Mocha Pro has some more sophisticated tool sets, some more shape options. Uh, it is very popular, so it is well worth a look. Uh, not full tech news, but we actually did sort of an in-depth hands-on with the X-H1 and then the X-Mount MK Zooms from Fujifilm. Not news necessarily, but it was a, it was a good hands-on review, and uh, we just wanted to bring it to people's attention. Um, one of the interesting things about the mirrorless camera space is that there's not a lot of... Usually when you're going mirrorless camera, you're either adapting to PL mount lenses if you want real cinema glass or you're working with non-cinema glass. One of the fun things about this combo is it's one of the few places we can think of where there's real, parfocal, like designed for cinema use, external follow focus lenses that are natively designed to work with a mirrorless format, these MK lenses. And it's great because by being mirrorless, they can be a little smaller, weigh a little bit less, but because they're designed for cinema, they work with external follow focus. You could put fizz gears on them and it would work. And they're really parfocal and it's sort of an interesting combo. And for me, I mean, look, full disclosure, I'm obviously a Fujifilm fan, but it's one of the things that makes Fujifilm so interesting is that you can go X-H1 and then you can adapt it to PL for all of your traditional lenses or EF. You've got great EF still lenses, which actually have really great autofocus. And we did some stuff on like a Ronin S with the X-H1. And man, the autofocus on those still lenses is great. But if you want a traditional cinema workflow, a tra traditional cinema set feeling, you can get that out of the um, MK zooms. So a really fascinating little in-depth 
field test that we wanted to draw your attention to. And I am back with Ask No Film School. Dina Hamdan asks, I'm shooting a short and there's a scene where I'd like to use audio clips from a TV background. There's not going to be music. Uh, there's not going to be any audio where like the name of the channel or presenter is mentioned. I just need like audio as background of the scene. Um, this is tricky. Uh, I know that it feels like one of those things you can probably just get away with. But if you want a festival life for this film, or especially, I mean, short films, as you said in your question, are actually starting to sell. I know people have sold their short film to Amazon, amazingly. Um, if you want that life, cover yourself and create that audio from scratch. Unless there's some specific thing you need from that TV show. And honestly, if there is, like, unless you have full copyright permission to use it, they can always shut you down. And depending upon how integrated they are with YouTube, YouTube is constantly looking for con copyright violations and taking them down. So I think it's not worth the risk. Like, I would cast a couple actors and have them record that sound and then run it through some plugins and posts to sound like it's coming out of a TV and create that TV feeling you want in the background without having to worry about licensing something unless you get written permission from the lawyers of the TV network. Because also, even then, you might not be safe because the TV network might not be the people with the rights. The TV production company might be the people with the rights. Like, if you want Seinfeld playing in the background of a scene, NBC is probably not who you need permission from. You probably need permission from the production company that produced Seinfeld. Was that Castle Rock? I should know this. So I would be really careful. I would just decide, hey, let's make up a soap opera and cast a couple friends and have them record that dialogue in the background. That is the safest possible thing you could do. And I think when you're trying to get out there and go to festivals and stuff like that, I think the safest move is the smartest move. And it will probably not take nearly as much time as navigating getting the rights to a little bit of audio for the background of a scene. All right, Dima, good luck with your project, and I hope it finds its audience. I'll see everybody next week. And now on to some movie openings. Premiering on Amazon Prime Instant and Netflix on October the 17th is Donnie Darko, which is just in time for Halloween. This cult classic will be available on both streaming services. And in case you're unfamiliar with this pretty crazy cult movie that has really grown in stature over the years, it takes place in October of 1988 when Donnie Darko, an isolated and incredibly smart high schooler, is visited by a menacing silver rabbit named Frank who tells him the world will end in 28 days, 6 hours, 42 minutes, and 12 seconds. By the time he starts that sentence, I wonder if it's gone down a few seconds. Uh <laughs> In his quest to understand the rabbit's message, he discovers that he can use portals to travel through time and that every living creature on Earth dies alone. Well, <laughs> well just got to watch it, folks. And so it's like one of these pick-me-up movies. It's definitely one of those. It's like, you know, yeah. And though it could be considered somewhat of a cultural phenomenon, and I think it is, uh, director Richard Kelly made the film at the age of 25 when he was fresh out of USC's film school, and back then things were quite different. When it debuted at Sundance, nobody dared touch it. Then the script was so original and the film so genre-bending and daring that distributors had no idea what to do with it. It didn't get picked up, and when it finally did after the festival, the film flopped at the box office. Uh, one thing to note is that also there's a plotline involving a plane crash, and it opened two weeks after 9-11. 
So it was kind of doomed from there. In the end, however, the film did garner over $10 million in DVD sales, prompting a director's cut in 2004 and a theatrical re-release in 2011 and 2017. Uh, it is one of John and Emily's favorite films, and Emily actually got the chance, as did I actually, to sit down with director Richard Kelly for different publications uh, to talk about his iconic picture a couple of years ago. Kelly said of this iconic film, The most satisfying part of the art form of cinema is building worlds. I wanted Donnie Darko to be memorable, and I wanted it to be immersive, and I wanted it to seduce the audience. I wanted it to be worthy of revisiting over and over again. My favorite filmmakers build and design worlds that you want to live in forever, even if it's a world that is horrifying or frightening. And you can read that entire what we call oral history of Donnie Darko on the site right now. So we've got a bunch of great indies coming to theaters this weekend. I'll kick it off with First Man. Uh, It's one of the most eagerly anticipated movies of 2018. And according to John, who got to see it up at TIFF, it definitely doesn't fail to impress. If you like space in any form, then we're pretty sure you'll like this movie. I mean, I personally like a little bit of space. A little bit of you know, space? Just like stay out of my way. Not too much. I live in New York. Uh, Damien Chazelle's follow-up to La La Land gets back to the gritty nature of his first film, Whiplash, as he retells the harrowing journey of Neil Armstrong's first trip to the moon. The story is told visually in such a way that separates itself from other sci-fi movies in film history. Space travel is not glamorized. It's shown in a claustrophobic, anxiety-inducing way that really makes it feel as if you're going to be strapped into a tin can with Armstrong, played by Ryan Gosling, and hurtled through the air with a 75% chance you may not come out alive. P.S. I feel like if women knew this movie was about that they'd feel like they were strapped into a small space with, with Ryan Gosling, like it would get a lot of female viewers. Even if you don't, you, you may not come out alive, but it's okay. F There's it. a 75% yeah. chance you don't, but that's right. fine. <laughs> So according to John, it deserves to be seen on as big a screen as possible. That means shelling out the extra dough to see it on IMAX because these rocket sequences and, of course, the moon landing at the end are dazzlingly immersive. Oh, you spoiled it. No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Another part of what makes the film so immersive, however, is its sound. And John actually sat down with the team behind the sound design at TIFF. We recently released their conversation as a podcast for uh, this past Monday's interview episode. So if you haven't listened yet, definitely do, because there are tons of crazy behind-the-scenes stories and worthwhile advice on how to execute sound design in post-production. We'll link to that in the podcast post. And also opening in theaters on Friday is Beautiful Boy. And this is another film that John got a chance to see at TIFF while we were slaving away in New York. Uh, Beautiful Boy is a very interesting experiment in the sense that it's actually drawing from two separate, extremely personal accounts of one single true incident. In 2008, David Sheff released the critically acclaimed novel Beautiful Boy, a memoir detailing the harrowing accounts of his teenage son's decade-long struggle with a crystal meth addiction. That same year, Nick Sheff, the very same son struggling with the addiction, released a memoir of his own titled Tweak. Now, nearly 10 years later, director, and I will probably butcher the last name, Felix van Groningen, Groningen Groningen has taken on the monumental task of combining both of these stories into one multi-layered adaptation of a family in crisis, which is a pretty interesting idea to have. Really interesting. Two of this, you know, two memoirs, and the film features a stellar performance from Timothy Chalamet of Call Me by Your Name as the son, and Steve Carell is heartbreaking in the role of his father. No, John told me the correct pronunciation is Timothy Chalamet Ding Dong. That's, I mean, that's how it's spelled. I don't know if that's how it's pronounced. <laughs> oh, oh, God, I got I, it. I, 
but it is Van Groningen who was responsible for picking and choosing whose journey we follow and when. And one can imagine that's a pretty difficult task when you have such talented actors and such a captivating story at your disposal. So John sat down with him at the Toronto International Film Festival to discuss how he messed with time and structure to rework his source material into the story we now see on screen. In his article, Beautiful Boy, director Felix Van Groningen on finding the emotional logic of your movie, which you can also read in this podcast post. Also opening in theaters on Friday, October 12th is The Kindergarten Teacher, and it's also going to be streaming on Netflix on Friday as well, so if you can't get to a theater for it. Uh, I saw the film back at Sundance at one of those 8.45 a.m. screenings that we trek out to every cold January in Park City, Utah. This is the second feature from director Sarah Colangelo, and for this one she was awarded the U.S. Dramatic Directing Award from the festival. I hadn't seen the original film that it's based on, which is a 2014 Israeli film of the same name, but this Americanized remake is quite fascinating and features a strong lead performance by Maggie Gyllenhaal. She plays a character named Lisa Spinelli, who's an overworked overseer, teacher, rather, of five-year-olds in a New York City, there are overseers, uh, in a New York City public school who looks to inspire and suss out the potential of her incoming students. One particular boy stands out, and she becomes his de facto overprotective stage mom, straddling the ethical line between supportive teacher and overbearing fan. And her film presents a very strong case for the good of both sides, in a way, you'll see. Uh, The film gets very creepy and disturbing, building to a climax in a hotel room that will have you on the edge of your seat. Whether you should seek it out in theaters or on Netflix this weekend, you should definitely seek it out. And finally, also opening October 12th is Sadie, which is actually being self-distributed by the Seattle-based filmmaker Megan Griffiths. Sadie premiered at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas this past March, and it too is about an occasionally young child in peril. So it's, it's one hell of a fun weekend, folks. Um, this tells the story of a young teen living in a Seattle-based trailer park who longs for her military father serving overseas to come back home. And the external concerns, the setting, and the political triggers of our country really provide. There's opioid addiction that's discussed. Mental health issues are two of the underlying factors here. Uh, And as our title character grows equally curious and territorial against a new neighbor who's interested in her mother, uh, the film takes a rather unexpected turn and manifesting on grief and expands on it twofold. This one is also really tense and goes to some very dark places. And I liked it. So uh, this one will probably be a much, much smaller release because it is being self-distributed. But um, it's glad that it is going out there and to see a filmmaker taking control of her work. And we've got some upcoming grant deadlines for you. On October 26th is the deadline for Screen Australia Documentary Development. If you're looking to develop an Australian documentary or co-production, you could get up to $30,000 for development from Screen Australia. Now, I'm not sure if that's 30000 U.S. or 30000 Australian dollars, but either way, it's a good chunk of change. Uh, this program assists experienced doc makers to achieve planned outcomes for the development of their projects. This could include further research, writing the next draft of a script or treatment, strategic shooting and or editing to attract marketplace development or production finance, or compiling a sizzle reel. Dang, I wish we had that here. I could use one of those. Uh, and on the 25th of October, Screen Craft Action and Thriller Script Contest has a deadline. If you have a heart-pumping action or thriller up your sleeve, you could win a thousand bucks plus industry exposure with judges from high-profile production companies like Bad Robot, Columbia Pictures, Donners, and Elevate. The jury is looking for emerging voices in the action movie genre. Whether you have a tense thriller or a big effects-driven action film, they say they'd like to read your screenplay. Professional feedback from studio-trained readers is available on all entries. 
one thing to look into if you're thinking about applying for this is, you know, make sure that you're going to still retain all the rights to your uh, to your screenplay if you if you win. And while we're talking about opportunities, I'll mention that Free the Bid has opened a new category for composers for visual media. This is the initiative we've talked about a couple times on the show, founded by one of my favorite filmmakers, Alma Harrell, to increase representation of female creatives in the ad industry and beyond. So if you are a woman and a composer, you can contact them at freethebid.com to potentially get listed in their high-profile database. And now for some festival deadlines. With the deadline of this Sunday, October the 14th, is the Dublin International Film Festival, and that is the extended deadline. The festival takes place February the 20th through March 3rd, 2019 in Dublin, Ireland. It's said to deliver the very best in Irish film and film talent to Irish and international audiences each year. So if you have an Irish film in the works, you should definitely apply by Sunday. Uh, Also, over the deadline of Friday, October 19th, is the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Film Festival, and this is the regular deadline. The festival takes place in Minneapolis, Minnesota, from April the 4th through April the 20th, 2019. And the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Film Festival, it's marking its 38th year next year, and it's the largest film festival in the upper Midwest region of the United States. Operated by the Film Society of Minneapolis-St. Paul, which is a nonprofit organization, this highly anticipated celebration of international cinema annually debuts more than 250 films to an audience of 45,000 and welcomes the attendance of more than 150 filmmakers from around the world. I got to say, I like the acronym on that one, MISPIF. M- oh, that's M-S-P-I-F-F, yeah. Yeah, it's also, it's also my, my hip-hop name, MISPIF. MISPIF? Yeah. I'm Mr. Puff. <laughs> Cool. Piff and puff. Let's do it. Um, And October 15th is the deadline for the San Luis Obispo International Film Festival. This one takes place March 12th to the 17th in San Luis Obispo, California, the beautiful seaside town. Last year marked the fourth time it was nominated to Mom's list of the top 50 film festivals worth the entry fee. Um, did you know that my mom ran Movie Maker Magazine? Yeah, no, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I re- she's pretty good with the interviews. Yeah, it's weird yeah. that like we're competition, but yeah, no, but I mean, she, she, she she's wins. supportive. Yeah, uh, there are a thousand dollar cash prizes for best narrative feature, best doc feature, and five hundred dollar cash prizes for best narrative short, best doc short, and best student film of any length. And now, I hope you're all ready for this week's words of wisdom. Hello, hello, it is I, (laughs) the Wisdom Wizard. Uh, (laughs) uh, Last week I had chatted with director Stephen Loveridge about his debut feature documentary, Matangi Maya M.I.A., which is a primarily archival documentary about the life and career of British Indian rap star M.I.A., of whom Loveridge had attended college with back in the 1990s. The documentary had many stop and starts. It was originally funded by the company Interscope, where MIA was signed, but then they dropped out, and it was a whole big mess, which led to the film drifting for a number of years before premiering at Sundance this past January. And at Sundance, it won the World Cinema Documentary Special Jury Award. So when asked what he took away from the experience of directing his first feature film, Loveridge responded, quote, With me, it's always been a confidence thing learning to push the decisions that you've made internally and getting somebody to just do what you're telling them to do. I found that very difficult at the beginning of this process. I would sit and watch edits where I'm like, I've asked for that shot to be changed and you haven't changed it. And so I had obviously lost that argument. Should I let it slide and then wrestle with things later? 
I'm now just a lot more confident and direct in the people that I work with because it's a lot easier than getting in that passive-aggressive way of whining on about things and asking somebody else to tell the editor on your behalf to change this thing because you can't get it done. I think I'm a lot more direct in my relationships with the people I'm working with now, and I've learned to be like that because it's a lot easier on everybody if you're straight up, honest, and forthright about what's really important to you. Um, and I just this kind of struck me as if you're a first-time feature filmmaker and you are trying to be taking, you know, leading the ship, and then you're noticing that certain things are not getting done that you've asked for, and then what is the next step, you know? And I, I think you either become more authoritative or you have to go through somebody else. So he's dealt with those frustrations, but it has made him a little bit more stern and probably clear about his own vision, I think, when you have to, because it is a collaborative process, of course. Uh, so you are relying on other people to get those decisions made as well. Well, I have to say, I think that Steve Loveridge's um, skin probably got a little thicker in the distribution process, too, because I saw this movie, you might remember, back at Sundance. Yeah. And um, it was the premiere, and MIA was there in the audience. And it turns out that was also her first time seeing the movie, which is, like, really scary. Yeah. And so the two of them got up for the Q&A. And again, they're old friends. And, of course, she gave him permission and access to all the material. But it was a super awkward Q&A because I don't think, like, she wasn't that happy with the film at the beginning. I mean, it's hard to see your own story on screen with an audience. I can't even imagine. Yeah. And she's since come out, uh, you know, back around in the press and said, like, she's gotten used to it and it's grown on her and she likes the film now. But, like, I cannot imagine being the filmmaker at your Sundance premiere up there with your subject and the subject is kind of a little lukewarm on the film. That's. I mean, there was a, a trailer that leaked for the film, like, four or five years ago. And Stephen had tweeted something like, I'd rather die than see this get released. And like that blew up on the internet as well. And then they really started from scratch in 2014. And so he had to get her to sign off to get, so he would have final cut of the film. So there's definitely some behind the scenes tumultuous events that took place. What a uh, process, but good for them for getting it out there. I actually enjoyed the film. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, I, I, I like her music, but I didn't really know much about her background. And she self-shot so much of it because she wanted to be a doc filmmaker herself, so it is worth seeing for that reason alone. Yeah, and actually, I saw her perform this past summer as part of the Miseducation of Lauren Hill tour, and it was really cool to see MIA on stage after knowing more about her story, which is much more complex and interesting than I think most pop stars out there. Yeah, definitely. So I know we already gave our Nobel Peace Prize shout out. That was pretty, we do that we do that every week. <laughs> pretty darn big one. But uh, in our shout outs segment this week, just when you thought there couldn't possibly be any more Emmy awards, there were more Emmy awards. <laughs> How the hell have we not been nominated for one yet? <laughs> I mean, just wait till the podcasting Emmys come around. Winners. The news and documentary Emmys were given out last week, and I'm super stoked to report that there were lots of friends of the pod and creators that we've covered on the site on the winners list. Our good friends over at Scatter won in Outstanding New Approaches Documentary category for Zero Days VR, and I think it's kind of interesting that a VR project is even included in the Emmys now. Um, we have them on a podcast talking about the project from Sundance last year. Some of the other projects that won that we've covered are Life Animated, Abacus, Small Enough to Jail, Chasing Coral, Solitary, Inside Red Onion State Prison, Forever Pure, and Last Man in Aleppo. So congrats, everyone, and we will link to those interviews in the podcast post. And speaking of podcasts, next Monday's podcast uh, is one that I recorded at the Camden International Film Festival last month, and it tackles a topic we all need to know more about. How the hell do we get our movies financed? 
I have three super smart guests, Haley Pappas, head of Riot Films, Caroline Von Kuhn, director of artist development at SF Film, and Leah Giblin, head of grants at Cinereach. Between them, they're responsible for getting millions of dollars to independent filmmakers each year with grants and financing. And we talk about how films are getting paid for today and how you can access some of those sources. So if you want to hear that and all the rest of our podcasts, make sure you subscribe to the No Film School podcast on iTunes or wherever you find your good old pods. Um, And if you do happen to do it on iTunes, we really appreciate your high ratings and reviews there. It helps other people find the show. Um, You can read about everything that we talked about on this show with links in our podcast post at nofilmschool.com, along with original articles every single day about the craft of filmmaking. And... We love it when you say hello. So please, you know, give us a tweet. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Eric Lures. The producer of this show is at Jim <laughs> underscore John. <laughs> well, I don't think I did it last week because it was no, just John it's and weird I. When it's one. And then it just felt so insulting. Well, it's Jim underscore John underscore Jim, otherwise pronounced Jim 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 Jim. Correct. And we are all at No Film School. So thanks, guys. See you next week. Ciao.